0: Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for blessing us in worship. I pray that you were encouraged and exhorted last week by the message from Edward Heinzey. His word that he brought Nehemiah, that our God will fight for us. We pray and then we pick up a weapon. We don't let go and let God. That is a cliche that should be banished to the ash bin of evangelicalism. Nehemiah prayed, fully relying on the sovereignty of God, and then he got to work. Pick up a shovel. Pick up a sword and a spear. It reminded me of a word from John Bunyan, that you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. It's a timely lesson for the church, perhaps more timely yet than we realize. As some of you know, last week I was very blessed to be able to attend the Shepherds Conference at the Master's Seminary in California, a gathering of 3,500 pastors from around the world, gathered to rejoice and to fellowship, to be renewed and equipped for the task of shepherding the flocks that we have so joyously been entrusted with. You know, and I was asked by many what my favorite part of the conference was, and two things really rose to the top. Yes, of course, the preaching was masterful exposition, but the first thing someone would notice if they've never been to a conference like this is the singing. Imagine, if you will, 3,500 men singing at the top of their voice. It was thunder. It was a cry of faith, not only a preview of heaven. The closest one can imagine to the throne room of God crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, but a battle cry against the very gates of hell as well. And as I looked around and listened to conversations and engaged with many other pastors, I was struck by my second takeaway that I wanted to bring back and encourage you with. We are not alone. It is easy in small towns around our country to feel isolated, to feel like we're insignificant. I want to remind you that we are part of a massive body of Christ that is thriving and fighting, that is blessing and battling. Know that we are connected to a body of believers that we cannot even imagine. While the news inundates us every day with the terrible effects of sin in our world, know that corporately every Sunday... And individually, every day, a thunder of praise rises up from believers and fills the halls of heaven. It is a sound like we cannot imagine. And we are a part of that. We join the chorus of heaven, and by that chorus, we are joined to one another. We are not alone. There is a number as numerous as the sands, lifting up holy hands, singing praises, fighting the fight of faith. And in the heavens, you and I are surrounded. Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews tells us, urging us on, encouraging us on, run the race with patience and endurance. If you could see down there what we see up here, you would never grow weary. You would never lose heart. If you could breathe one breath, of the air of heaven, you would fix your gaze and you would set your jaw like a flint towards eternity. So be encouraged this morning, beloved. Let us run the race of faith. Run it in such a way as to win because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we rejoin our journey through Mark's Gospel. Having completed the telling of the transfiguration, Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up Mount Hermon, removing the veil of His humanity for a moment, giving them a peek behind the curtain, a foretaste of the glory that was to come. It would be a scene that would shape and that would form the lives of those three men on that mountain forever. All of them would later speak of beholding the glory of Christ that day, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. And we were reminded that this transfiguration was the closest look at the reality of Jesus that we have experienced up to this point. That the miracle was not the transfiguration in the removing of the veil. The miracle, in fact, was being able to conceal His unapproachable glory day in and day out, living amongst the created beings who would perish at the very sight of who He truly is. Of course, in a series of whiplash highs and lows that our disciples have experienced up to this point, this roller coaster ride of discipleship, this was certainly a high. This was a crescendo point being joined by Elijah and Moses. It was a scene to overwhelm the senses. Elation and terror, wonder and bewilderment. And as they were coming back down the mountain, we did a deep dive into their discussion on Elijah. As the disciples tried to make sense of what they just saw. Their theological puzzle of what they had been taught all the way from their childhood had just been shattered and needed to be put back together again. Of course, Jesus directed them back to the Scriptures. Yet somehow we see the rejection and the persecution of Jesus was a shock to them. All the suffering that would happen to Jesus was unthinkable. Yet it was all right there in the Scriptures that they had always known. The crimson thread of a suffering servant was there from Genesis 3 to the prophets, to the Psalms, all the way to the disciples, even down to the cruelest details of crucifixion prophesied before crucifixion even existed. It's amazing what we will see when we actually read our Bibles. Principles and concepts about God or theology you may struggle with are all there in crystal clarity. But the disciples listened to tradition instead of the Word. The Word told them that a suffering servant would be their Messiah. And today, many evangelicals espouse Bumper sticker theology as well. Giving sway to churchianity and tradition, yielding such shallow roots that no roots can take hold. Such shallow soil that no roots can take hold. It's amazing what we will see when we read our Bibles. Tradition is fine, but it is subject to Scripture. And we must take it all in. We are sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And like the Reformers, we are also tota scriptura, meaning we affirm the totality of Scripture. All of it. In Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesians in Acts, he declared that he was innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Sola scriptura. You can't take away from the Bible. Tota scriptura. You can't take away from the Bible. From the Bible. We are continually pointing back to Scripture. Where the modern church cries out for pragmatism, we cry out for the glorious, narrow truth of God's Word. This is the pattern of Jesus. As they were descending, coming down off the mountain, it was a literal descending, but in a very real sense, it was a, a mental and, and emotional descending as well. They're coming off of a spiritual high of a lifetime. I don't think we can adequately appreciate. Indeed, who would want to leave the presence of glory? You know, my wife and I were talking the other day about Peter's raising of Tabitha from the dead. And we mused whether or not those raised were disappointed when they woke up. Or worse yet, consciously being with the Lord and being sent back. Thanks a lot, right? Well, the disciples would leave that shining face, those eyes of fire, only to come back down the mountain. And as we open our scene before us today, this will be part one of a two-part series titled, Faith of a Father. It is a rich scene, jam-packed with immense theological truths to be applied and gleaned. You will find this scene paralleled in both Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, And while those accounts are less descriptive than Mark's, which is very unusual for Mark, they all place this scene immediately following the transfiguration. So with that, let's look at our text, Mark 9, 14 through 19, Mark 9, 14 through 19. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed. And as they ran up, they were greeting him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we approach this text this morning that you would allow us to be there in mind, soul, and strength or that we might see what you would have us to see. Holy Spirit, as always, we ask that you would fire the arrow, that it would find its mark, that the word would not come back void. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that we love about taking a vacation is that, well, it's a vacation, right? We love to embrace a bit of escapism from the everyday grind, which of course leads to our inevitable least favorite part of the vacation, that we have to come back, right? How many of you have taken that nice getaway and you come back that Monday morning and you sit down at that desk And that phone rings, right? Breaking that daydream of that palm tree that you were just sitting under 24 hours ago. Or that alarm that goes off in the morning. Back to reality. Vacation is over. And as we dive into the first verse of our text this morning, this must have been the sense of Peter, James, and John. They have been basking in a scene on the mountain that nobody would have wanted to leave. Not only that, but to have received this taste of the kingdom to come. What they have always been waiting for. The veil being removed for just a moment and now being snatched away. On top of that, let's see what Jesus, Peter, James, and John come upon as they arrive at the bottom of the mountain. Verse 14, beginning with our text. And when they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Talk about back to reality. Those of you who have been with us since the beginning of Mark just got a blast from the past, arguing with the scribes. The vacation palm trees sure were great, but the alarm just went off. Back to reality. And as we continue on, let us be reminded of the continued dynamic of the mountain and valley pattern in Mark. Just look back from chapter 8 and on. We began with Peter in Caesarea Philippi saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, a mountaintop. And only three verses later, get behind me, Satan, valley low. Then the transfiguration, literal mountaintop, spiritual mountaintop, elation, and back down now, arguing with the scribes, demonic possession, failure in the disciples, valley low. This is spiritual whiplash. Not only do we have great compassion on these men, but how many of us can relate as well? Well. Back to our text, let's dig deeper. It begins, and when they came back to the disciples. Well, we know that the other other nine disciples had been left behind. And of course, given the constant bickering about being Jesus' favorite, I assure you it did not go unnoticed that Peter, James, and John were getting the special treatment. However, look at our scene. They saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Let's look at the players on the field here. A large crowd first. Well, these are the people who had come to the disciples. Now, they had either accompanied the father with the demon-possessed boy, or they merely heard that Rabbi Jesus was in the area, and here are his disciples, right? And if his disciples are there, Jesus will eventually be as well. So we have a large crowd. We have gawkers, you name it, and scribes arguing with them. So visualize our nine disciples surrounded by this large crowd and the verb of arguing here by the scribes is in the present tense, meaning they're in a state of continual verbal jousting. This was a scene of bullying, of harassment. The scribes were there for the same reason that they were always there, to discredit Jesus, to argue about his claims. And now, oh now, Christmas has come early for the scribes. Looky here. Jesus' disciples couldn't cast out the demon. Well, well, well. Talk about ministry preparation for these disciples when the Master will ascend and leave them in only a short time. Get used to the abuse. Get used to the wagging of heads. Get used to the confrontation and the conflict. If you wake up in the morning and don't butt heads with the devil, you're probably headed the same direction. These scribes were smearing them, rubbing their noses in their failure to cast out this demon. And these fledgling disciples, these poor disciples, they probably felt like they were just getting their ministry feet underneath them. They had experienced some victories. They had already been used by the Lord to cast many demons out, and to heal all the way back in Mark 6 when they were sent out in twos. And here was an opportunity to walk in faith, to flex their spiritual muscles with the master gone, to stand on their own, to flap their wings to fly. And all the crowd is watching them and they fail. Watch as our scene changes here in verse 15. And immediately... When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed. And as they ran up, they were greeting him. Well, here we see Mark's favorite word again. Immediately. Remember, Mark is our gospel of action. Go, go, go. Immediately. When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed. Well, what's happening here? Why is the crowd amazed? Well, the English can lead us astray here a bit, and it's caused some misinterpretations to proliferate on this scene. If you or I hear amazed, perhaps we we think of beholding some sort of scene or wonder, right, to be amazed. And that's led some commentators to surmise that perhaps the reason for the crowd's amazement was due to some residual glory still hanging on to Jesus, Kind of like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, right? Still got a little glory on my face and my hair. But of course, that doesn't fit at all. Because what does the second part of our verse say? And as they ran up, they were greeting him. They ran towards him. Not the reaction you would expect when someone's face is glowing or something otherworldly is happening. They would have ran away or fell down or stared in wonder. Instead, they ran to him and greeted him. Not only that, but Jesus has just given a command to silence earlier. What's the point of that if he still has residual glory all over himself? So, what's happened here? Well, the best way to understand amaze and the crowd's reaction is that Jesus was unexpected. They were so engrossed in the back and forth with the scribes, they may not have even seen Jesus' approach. And here he is. Here they were blaspheming Jesus and his divinity. That was the point of the whole discussion. And there he is standing right behind you. That's the amazement they are speaking of. It's a word of shock, being astonished or disturbed. It's just like you would imagine of someone standing right behind you as you're speaking ill of them, right? And they say, hey guys, so what you talking about? Can you see it? Which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 16. What does he say? And he asks them, what are you arguing with them? So if we dig into this, we see this, we see the incredible awkwardness of this scene. It's embarrassment. The scribes were just blaspheming the guy standing behind them. And the disciples are sitting in a pool of failure. It's an all-around embarrassing scene and a taunting exchange. They were not expecting the object of their conversation to just show up in their midst. And yet, here he is, and they are amazed. What are you arguing with them? Well, here Jesus is talking to the scribes. <clears throat> the nine disciples were basically the kids being bullied on the playground, right? Till one of the older kids steps in to protect them. If you have something to say, you can come talk to me because the disciples are losing their shirts here. They can't match wits with the scribes. They're learned. They're educated. They need defending. And that's exactly what Jesus does. What do you want to argue about? How many times have you had your mouth stopped at my questioning? What do you have to say? What's your argument? And what do they say? What do the scribes say in response? What do the disciples say in response? Answer, nothing. Nothing. The scribes know they are outgunned and outmatched. They've got nothing to say. The disciples are hanging their head in shame in front of the master for their failure. Neither is feeling very chatty. So guess who speaks up? Verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought you my son. Possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Someone from the crowd. Someone from the crowd not only speaks up, but much more than that. The title of our two-part series is Faith of a Father. And here we're finally introduced to this father. And there are a few things about this man that we miss if we don't rotate the gospel diamond. Now we have a few new people in our congregation who might not have heard that term, rotating the diamond. Well, the Puritans referred to the four gospels as a type of diamond. And if we rotate it and we look at it from all four sides, it throws different sparkles and light on the wall. And we can see different angles and cuts. All beautiful but different. So often we'll rotate the diamond from Mark to see what shafts of light might illuminate to give us a fuller picture. So if we rotate the gospel diamond to Matthew 17, so don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. We see that this Father came up to Jesus Falling on his knees before him. We see this Father coming with a spirit of humility and with a heart of worship. Two necessary ingredients for faith. He falls at Jesus' feet. And Matthew tells us that he addressed Jesus as Lord. Yet in our text here today, we see that the Father addressed Jesus as teacher. Is that a contradiction? Not at all. This means that the father said both. So let us see the complete scene. Mark tells us that one of the crowd answered him. But Luke's account actually says that the father shouted out to him. So he's yelling, teacher, Lord. And what happens in a, when someone in a crowd yells? What happens? The crowd usually parts. right? They turn around to look at who's yelling. And this guy takes that opening and he runs and he falls at Jesus' feet. Master, Teacher, Lord. Those who come to Christ must come to Him as He is. We may not come as we wish Him to be. He is Master. He is our Teacher. And He is Lord. We cannot even come in faith unless we come to Him as He is. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. He is Lord. And the Father here uses the word kurios for Lord. The same glorious word used by the Syrophoenician woman back in Mark 7. If you missed that message, please go back and listen to it. You will be immeasurably blessed. But now this Father has come to Jesus with a heart of worship and a spirit of humility, throwing himself at Jesus' feet what a very good place to be behold the fertile ground of faith he has come to jesus knowing that he is lord curios meaning jesus is the possessor he's the owner he's the master the supreme one that jesus is sovereign that he possesses absolute authority that he has absolute ownership rights and uncontested power that by jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is Lord. Now, does this mean that this man understood all these things perfectly? Of course not. But you take the knowledge and the faith that you have and you press. Press in. You will be filled. Beloved, we are swimming. We are swimming in a raging river of grace. And yet we somehow wonder if our thirst will be quenched. If our need will be met. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Come, beloved, come to him as you are and come to him as he is, with a heart of worship and a spirit of humility. But that's not all. One more ingredient from our text, Luke's telling in chapter nine, the father says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. Saints, we come in desperation. This man is desperate. He has one son. His entire family name rested on this boy. All the love that he had to give as a father has been lavished on the only one that he could lavish it upon his only son. And we mourn for this father and for his trial, yet he is in the most enviable position. This trial has thrown him at the feet of his Savior, crying out now in worship and humility and desperation. This man could not be in a better place. If the trial has brought us closer to the Lord, however painful, can we really despise that pain? Remember the surgeon's scalpel from previous messages when evaluating pain as a Christian, both a knife to the chest and a scalpel to the chest, both would bring about immense pain. The difference lies in the one wielding the instrument. For the believer, when the pain comes, when the scalpel cuts, we know that our Heavenly Father holds the instrument and He is working out this pain and He's working out this situation or this condition for our eternal good and for His glory. We have God's literal and His spoken and His preserved Word on it. Romans 8.28 This father had to witness the most terrific tragedy and terror in his son, his only son. Mark gives us details of the man's report. It's horrific to consider, but it gives such treasures of knowledge. Look back to our text, last part of verse 17. I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Let's deal with this first. A few things to notice. We've spoken in previous messages on demonology, which is, of course, the study and the theology of demons as it has arisen in our time in the Gospel of Mark, and indeed that is often. Demons have always been with us since they were cast out of heaven as fallen angels, but they mostly desire to operate in the background, in secrecy, or even as an angel of light. We see very little in the way of demonic activity in the Old Testament, very little. And now all of a sudden, in the New Testament, they're around every corner. What happened? Jesus happened. Until Jesus came, it was as if all the demonic sediment had settled. And they were quietly doing the bidding of Satan. And here comes Jesus, and he shook the entire bottle up. Everywhere he goes during his ministry, he's stirring up and provoking demons. And funny how often he found them in the church, in synagogues, Satan's favorite place, the church pew. We find demons inhabiting both man and beast throughout the Gospels. The demons don't particularly care about having a body. They merely desire to kill and torture that which God has created, particularly image bearers of God, human beings. Now, if you're interested in knowing much more about that topic, we've given a very thorough treatment of it in earlier messages where Jesus came upon these issues. Mark 1, verse 32, 34, 39, 3, verse 15 and 22. Chapter 5, verse 12, 15 through 18, 6, 13, 7, 26 through 30. Jesus knew how to stir demons up. And it was His very presence, as we will see, that provokes them. But let's look at this particular possession or inhabitation of this poor child. Mark has four horrific descriptions of this possessed boy to help give us an appreciation of the severity of the affliction. Well, first we see at the end of verse 17 again that the boy was mute. Luke's account tells us that he was in fact deaf as well. Deaf and mute. The description continues, verse 18... Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Pause there. Well, short of the demoniac of the gathering, this is the most intense and the most vivid description we see of demonic possession. Verse 18 begins saying, and whenever, and Whenever. That's an easy word to miss, but that tells us that these horrific episodes were completely unpredictable. Unpredictable. So layer that pain of the unknown, isn't not knowing sometimes the worst? Layer that pain of the unknown on top of it all. Just keep piling it on. When the demonic force asserted itself, it says that it seized him. And I like the English here. Because if it just wanted to indicate that the demon would grab the boy or lay hold of the boy, in the Greek we would just say lambano. But instead it reads kata lambano. Kata puts the violence into the action. It's a sudden thrust of power. It's complete domination and control. And that's captured in our text As we read, it slams him to the ground. That's an excellent rendering. Exactly what it did. This was not Hollywood. When demonic possession was some sort of personality and voice change, this was a violent attack. Luke captures it perfectly when he records that the demon mauled the boy. To crush him. To shatter him. To break him to pieces. This was vicious. The demon was in complete domination and control. The boy is mute. He's deaf. And he is hit like a Mack truck and slammed to the ground again and again. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Well, anyone with a medical background probably just perked up when reading that. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like epilepsy or a grand mal seizure. But we must be very clear that both Matthew and Mark record the underlying cause as demonic, not psychological or physiological. However, the interaction and association between the demonic and mental or physical illnesses, etc. is a, a critical topic for another day. But however much this looks like epilepsy or some other diagnosable medical disorder, we mustn't do that for two reasons. First is that Jesus himself treats this as and identifies this as demonic possession, not a physical or a mental ailment. And Scripture often goes out of its way to distinguish between the two. Matthew 4, 24. And secondly, if we allow ourselves a medical explanation here, we may be tempted to look for natural causes in a supernatural book. We have a whole class of self-styled intellectuals and higher critics in academia who make it their aim to give natural explanations to the events of the Bible. It's a hallmark of theological liberalism. We stay far away from that. If it says demonic possession, it was demonic possession. Now that being said, he was being continually assaulted. Matthew says the boy was even being thrown in the water and the fire as the demon tries to kill the boy, being crushed into the ground with no warning. What happens when we're walking around our house and we get thrown to the ground with no, more, with no warning? You hit things. Just imagine would years of this assault probably yield other physical ailments? Absolutely. Could the boy have had bruising on the brain from these episodes? Of course. Those are all knockoff effects, but the underlying cause is the demonic. Back to our text. Here is where we start getting to the real rub of the matter. The last part of verse eighteen. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. One rendering says they did not have the strength. What is happening here, beloved? Why could the disciples not cast this demon out? If we look back to Mark 6, we saw very clearly that Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits and that they were in fact casting out many demons. Verse 13. So why the failure? Every once in a while as a family, we like to go bowling. It's fun to bring the kids, and of course, you know, they put up the bumper rails when your little ones come up for a turn. Well, one, during one particular game, I have to say I've been running a straight game, I was going almost straight strikes all the way through, and the kids had been using the bumper rails. Well, during that game, I had to run off to the restroom, and when my turn came up with me away, the bumpers went down. And there was a big boy lane staring Elias right in the face. No bumpers. Of course, he can't resist. And remember, those trusty bump guardrails, they've given him a certain sense of success, right? The ball always gets down to the end, and a lot of pins always fall down. And he's watched dad bowl strike after strike. It can't be that hard. So with dad away, Elias takes the bowl with the predictable result of the ball rolling down the gutter. Elias needed his bumpers. He had been a victim of his own surface success, and he had watched Dad do it with such ease. But he's not Dad. He needed his rails. What happened with the disciples? They had loads of success in Mark 6, casting out lots of demons. They had their bumpers up. They've got this. Check it out. I've done it a hundred times before and I've watched the master bowl. Perfect strikes time after time. Now the master is away. He's up on the mountain. The bumpers are down open lane. So they take the shot. Gutter ball. Why? Why? What are the metaphorical bumpers here? Well, not to steal our thunder for next week, but just a sneak peek. Look to the end of this story in verse 29. Look quickly down in your scriptures to verse 29. And he said to them, this kind of prayer cannot come out. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. By telling them that this kind only comes out by prayer... What is he telling the disciples that they did not do? Pray. You've had this previous success, and you're a victim of that success. You walked into this thinking that the power was in you just because of your own intrinsic awesomeness. No. We must be a people of prayer. Get your bumpers up, or we're going to gutter ball every time. One commentator writes, quote, "That humble, dependent prayer is the highway that faith takes to the power of God." Close quote: "Our spiritual successes and mountaintops, which we have experienced, those encourage us and they remind us about God's goodness, but they're not meant to lessen our dependence or to become too self-assured. Take heed lest we fall. And I tell you the truth, I had to preach this to myself before I could preach this to you. I am the king of running on my own steam. I don't need to pray because I already know what to do. I've done this a hundred times. I've seen this a hundred times. The disciples have cast out a hundred demons. Here comes another one. I got this. No, you don't. And no, they didn't. Gutterball. They approached in their own strength, not in the dependent life and posture that should mark the believer. To be a Christian is to be a dependent creature. And how hard is that in a culture that, which is a misnomer? There are no actual independent people. The only question is what or who you're depending on. The independent person is simply depending upon themselves. Gutterball. If we see ourselves primarily as independent beings and not dependent ones, we have yet to see our true and total inability when God saved us. If we see God as He is and ourselves as we are, we will cling to Christ as a man to a lifeboat. We will take shelter under the wings of the Almighty as beautifully dependent creatures. Back to our texts. Here's where it gets deep and even more interesting. Is the problem that they did not pray? Yes, we know that from the end of the text. But what is the favorite saying from this pulpit? The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Yes, they did not pray, but prayer is an action that is prompted by the heart. So what is the heart of the problem? Verse 19, Jesus tells us, thank you very much. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation. There it is. You did not pray and thus you were ineffective. But Jesus is dishing out some biblical counseling here. Why didn't you pray? What is the heart of the matter? Unbelief. When we do not pray, when we charge at life with an independent spirit, we're acting in unbelief. We're telling the Lord that what you say about your power is wrong and what I say about my power is right. I don't believe what you have spoken. I don't need to pray because my fallen heart tells me that I've got this. I'm looking to, I'm leaning upon my own power my own intellect, my 401k, my instincts, my resources. You're not believing me. And without faith, you cannot please God. He is not interested in how talented or how successful you are. He doesn't need your talent or your success. It comes as a real shock to some of our egos that God doesn't need us. He desires a broken And contrite spirit. He will never turn that away. He desires sheep who know they need the shepherd, who knows they are helpless without him, who knows that they are fed by the shepherd, that they're protected by the shepherd, that they're loved by the shepherd. Complete dependency. This is the disciples' error in our text. They moved in their own strength. They did not pray, revealing the true heart of the problem, unbelief. Jesus' rebuke here coming is pretty scorched earth. This is a harsh rebuke. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Well, the scorched earth is often missed here. Because we're led to believe that Jesus is speaking to the whole crowd, of which there would have been many unbelievers there, there would have been many scribes there, etc. However, most theologians agree that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That must sink in if we are to capture the essence of this rebuke. It's not the father of the boy lacking faith. He's exercising the gift of faith given to him. And what about the unbelievers? In a salvific, in a salvation sense, they have no true gift of faith to exercise. So the only ones that have been given the gift of faith and are not exercising it and using it are the disciples. Oh, unbelieving generation. This word, oh, it's a word of emotion. This has hurt Jesus on an intimate level. He's exasperated with them. He's frustrated with them. How many times have you seen with your own eyes? You've been given the gift of faith, the knowledge of your dependency on me, and yet you hop outside the sheep pen every time. This should have been done. Jesus is disappointed and he's weary with them. Jesus' rebuke begins with him putting his finger on the issue of their heart. Why could they not cast out this demon? Unbelief. Now his lament goes even further. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Ouch. On the surface, this sounds rough. Very rough. And there's no hiding that this is a stinging rebuke. And we understand why. But there's great beauty hidden in our master's words. How long shall I be with you? Answer, not long. The cross is coming. Jesus' eyes, as we have come back down the mountain, are now fixed upon Jerusalem. We are in a slow march toward the cross. We mustn't miss Jesus' focus when he says this. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? This is a language of culmination. This is a language that has an end in mind. And it's an end that Jesus has been telling them about from the beginning. And if the cross is coming, my resurrection is coming. And if I be raised, I shall ascend and I shall send a comforter to you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is an end to your weary unbelief. And it will start at the cross. And it will be authenticated in my resurrection. And you will watch me ascend into heaven. And the helper will come. And you're going to turn this world upside down. But oh, I am weary now. And I cannot wait for that day. Final part of our text, bring him to me, bring him to me. Behold the medicine of every travail to every parent who has had a child wayward. This boy was blessed. He had a father who brought him to Jesus, who threw himself at the feet of Jesus on behalf of his tormented son. I know many in our fellowship have children away from the Lord. We'll close with a quote from the Prince of Preachers. The Lord sometimes suffers His people to be driven into a corner that they may experimentally know how necessary He is to them. Ungodly children, when they show us our own powerlessness against the depravity of their hearts, drive us to flee to the strong for strength. And this is a great blessing to us. In the days of their youth, we shall see sad tokens of that deaf and dumb spirit, which will neither pray aright nor hear the voice of God in the soul. But Jesus still commands, bring them to me. When they are grown up, they may wallow in sin and foam with enmity against God. Then, when our hearts are breaking, we should remember the great physician's words, Bring him to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, you have done all things well. Lord, we desire to have your kind gaze upon us this morning. Lord, we desire to not be a, a flock that brings you frustration or or weariness, but Lord, that you would look upon us with a kind face, Lord, that we would not be discouraged, that we would encourage ourselves for the day that is coming. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us this week. We ask as we begin to dive further and further into this text that you would cause this word to go down deep, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Keep us until we meet again, we pray.